Hello guys, my name is Alex, and this is the Thousand Movie Project podcast. It's the first one in a while, kind of a reboot of it. My friend Emma started a podcast of her own called Emster's World, and she was doing such a great job at it. I was thinking of like getting back into the swing and trying to come up with a format for how I can do it in such a way that's like it's sustainable and it keeps me interested every week, and I think I've kind of figured it out. I don't know. I live at the moment in a part of Miami that sees lots of tourists. I'm, I'm kind of in Little Havana between like the touristy part of Little Havana and then Brickell Avenue, which is fine. It, it gets pretty sketchy at times and, and drug dealers abound and lots of shit gets stolen. All of that is a hassle, but probably the biggest bummer is that there's so much homelessness in this little pocket of town. And I'd say that among like the 9 to 14 homeless people that I pass each morning on my usual mile-long walk to the cafe where I do a bunch of writing... Incidentally, I make that walk at around like 7.30 in the morning, and they're all still sleeping. And I was interested to notice that um, most of the homeless people on that route take their sneakers off and use them as pillows. Anyways, I'd say that like half of those homeless people, or slightly more than half, are burdened by a kind of agitated mental illness that makes them shout and chuck things at people and, and talk to themselves. At least... Two of the homeless dudes in my immediate vicinity have had their dicks out as I was trying to buy a bagel. But anyway, as concerns the tourists, the tourists, I think the tourists are fine, really. I've heard New Yorkers complain about it and Londoners and Chicagoans, if that's how it, but the only issue I've noticed with tourists, at least in these two parts of Miami, is just is how slowly they conduct transactions. So they're slow at the register because it's like a different currency or there's a language barrier or they've never seen this kind of food before. It's all perfectly understandable. If you're in a good mood, you can totally like zone out and let them do their thing and totally forgive them and even smile at them. But Nobody here is ever really in a good mood, though, so, like, whenever a tourist is doing his or her touristy thing, like asking the barista at Passion del Cielo to describe every single food item in the display case, whenever that's happening, you can hear the rest of the line kind of, like, shifting around and scoffing and mumbling about, like, when's this person just going to place their fucking order and leave? And this was, like, low-key happening at CVS a couple months ago, a, a CVS in one of the two touristy regions on either side of my apartment. I was the only person in line, and there were these two women at the counter ahead of me, and in the middle of their transaction, they suddenly had to put everything on pause and consult something on their phone. I don't really know what was going on. All I know is that it was taking a really long time and that the guy working the register, this very skinny bald guy with a long beard, he looked over at me and like his nostrils were flared and his lips were pressed into like a tight angry little line. He was telling me with his face that he was annoyed, which I can understand. I wasn't thrilled about it either, but all in all, like at that moment, I was in a pretty good mood. I I just had like a productive couple hours of riding at the cafe down the street, and I was just stopping here on my way back home so I could pick up a can of black beans and some juice. But so now I'm looking back on this whole encounter a couple months later, and I'm wondering if if I was maybe doing something with my face without realizing it, something that kind of suggested that I was angry because I've resigned myself at this point to the fact that I I really can't control my I, mean, I can I can control my emotions. I cannot conceal my emotions that they show up on my face whether I like it or not. But it's extra disconcerting to look back on this because even even while I'm sitting there in a perfectly good mood, there's a chance I've figured that I'm like flashing something hostile on my face. And there's always a chance if you're flashing some kind of hostility on your face that there's going to be some kind of agitated stranger who's going to look at me and be like, hey, that very white man appears to be as angry as I am, which which can sometimes be a basis for friendship in the sense of like, okay, oh, my enemy's enemy. But I feel like it's probably more likely to start a fight or not a fight because I'm, I'm not really a fight. It would, it would start a beating. I would be beaten. Because I do feel like that it's like a distinctly Miami sensibility is that some tatted kind of bro dude 
character who wants to assert his masculinity by always being the angriest man in the room. Like, he will see my anger, and rather than commiserating about, oh, my tattoos itch as well, dude. Like, it's, it's no, they've got to, like, pull off their shirt and slap their breasts and call you a bitch. Anyway, so I'm here at CVS. It's sometime in February, I think, and there are these two slow-moving tourists at the counter, and the cashier is looking at me as though I am as angry about the tourists as he is, which I'm not. It's fine, but I'd, I'd rather I'd rather that the violent-looking man interpret my blank expression as something, as something, like, you know, that he can relate to. But anyway, so it takes a couple minutes, uh, but eventually these two customers, finally, they finish their transaction and they leave, and I go up to the counter with my beans and with my juice, and the dude greets me with a scoff, and he says to me, yo, are you Venezuelan? And I was like, no, I'm Alex. And he goes, bro, no offense if you know any of them, but I fucking hate Venezuelans. They can't make up their mind about anything. They think that the world is waiting on them. He was talking super fast and, like, super agitated, and he's, like, snatching up my items, and he scans both of them. And I said, were they, were they Venezuelan? And I was, I'm kind of, like, I'm pointing toward the exit, where you, the exit is glass, and you can kind of see, you can see the two women, they're still standing in the parking lot, they're reading their receipt. And he doesn't say yes, but he, he scoffs, and he goes, I bet you a fucking hundred thousand percent those two are Venezuelan. And then he starts just, like, nodding in a really dramatic way, and he goes on about Venezuelans a bit before asking me about my own background, which seemed like a question that I really, I really did not want to get wrong. And it turns out that being Cuban was the correct answer. Like, I, I won the racial jeopardy at CVS because he, this guy was Puerto Rican and apparently has nothing but nice things to say about about Cubans. They're a fine people indeed. But so the transaction's over and he holds out his hand and I try to just, like, give him a handshake, but he reels me into some kind of manshake that's, that's, that culminates in, like, a half hug and he, has, he like, he pulls me forward across across the counter to embrace me with, with one arm. It's fine. I endure it and I take my things and I leave. It's fine. But now I've got this issue that every time I go to CVS, I see this fucking dude behind the counter and he pulls me into that handshake thing and he starts talking to me like a bro, like everything is fuck this and fuck that. And yesterday, for example, I, st I, I popped into CVS on my way to a bar. It's about 7 p.m. And I was going there because I needed to buy a new notebook. It was just that simple. So I go in, I grab the notebook, hi and bye, and you know, I, I leave. But then I had to stop in again on my way home from the bar at around 9 p.m. because I needed to buy some black beans and some juice. And, of course, I'm a little tipsy, but I just had two pints on an empty stomach. And so I get to the front of the line at CVS, and he pulls me into the same fucking man shake, except now he's added some complicated layer to it, and there's a long line behind us. Look, We look like we're fucking Illuminati. And he says to me, bro, I don't know what's going on with all these women in here not wearing bras, and I'm not complaining, but it's making me wonder, like, damn, girl, don't you have a boyfriend? Shouldn't you be covering up and I you know I, I tell him like you know I've never known a woman who enjoyed wearing a bra like I never I've never seen a woman sigh with relief as she put her bra on like I'm not, I, I'm just I'm not really sure how to respond to this guy's complaint and so I you know I try to just shrug about it and like maybe suggest with my tone and my face that you know the brawlessness of CVS customers right near the ocean is probably not something to be so bent out of shape about but the thing about this guy is like he's a squirrely dude but he's very much a, like a, a certain type of squirrely dude like maybe you're familiar with the sort where and, and I know this is crazy presumptuous of me but I think there's a grain of truth to it that he's maybe the sort of person who's like anointed himself some kind of moral authority and and that he's maybe done this as like a response to feeling small and ignored I don't know it's douchey to play armchair psychologist in that respect but I also remember that when I worked at a restaurant the servers who were mostly in their in their mid-30s they were always very gracious and magnanimous and they were always put on that sort of the server show and they were very pleasant but if they were being heckled by a colleague or if, if they were dealing with some issue in the kitchen or if a customer was being rude to them, they'd become extremely judgmental. And it wasn't necessarily like, okay, you have an asshole customer and everyone around you like commiserates. It was usually when there was some, I don't know, like 
constellation of things all come uh, of frustrations all coming together where it was making them feel like they were doing a bad job even though they were working really hard and whenever that happened whenever you could you could tell whenever these things were coming together to make them seem like they were inept at their job they would start walking faster and they would not make eye contact and they would talk in a really seething way and like they would whip napkins into the corner and they would talk about like how everyone around them is an idiot or an asshole and you just get okay so it just seemed very much like a, a visceral response to the feeling of smallness and yeah I, I just get a vibe like this dude at cvs maybe maybe he always feels unappreciated and disrespected or small and that's fine you know we all probably have some way of turning our wounds into weapons philip roth says in one of his later books that um other people's weaknesses can hurt you every bit as much as, as their strengths but i'm wondering like what the fuck did i do that this guy latched onto me as like a kindred spirit who will understand everything that he's feeling like what is it about the way that i carry myself through a cbs that's just attracted the kinship of like a neurotic misanthrope i i don't know i don't know what it what it is but one thing's for damn sure i gotta stop buying black beans and juice like one can at a time yeah 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 Tonight's episode of the Thousand Movie Project podcast is sponsored by J&B Sexual Consultancy Service. Take it away, Jay. Thank you, Alex. Hi, I'm Jay of J&B Sexual Consultancy Services. If you and your partner are having trouble in the bedroom, just call me, I'll come over. You know, it's not uncommon that the passion should fizzle away from a marriage after so many years. But there's things you can do, my friends, it doesn't all have to die. Words of affirmation are a good place to start. Remind your partner that you find them attractive, even if it's a lie. You know, the implementation of instruments is a good way of spicing things up in the bedroom. It doesn't have to be anything crazy at first. You don't have to go out and buy a riding crop or anything. You're not a horse, after all. Go ahead and start with something small though it can be a feather cucumbers have proven very versatile with some of my earlier clients and not even just when they're raw go ahead and pickle that thing it's still good sometimes even a change of appearance can have a big influence on reigniting passion in the bedroom i tend to encourage all of my clients to grow a mustache all of them even the women and another thing Get familiar with your partner's fluids, all of them, every single fluid. Treat your partner like a smoothie. Treat your partner like a talking smoothie full of hair. We've got tons of tips and tricks to get your tip dipped quick. So just give us a call. Come on, it'll be fine. We'll come over. Our number is 911. Incidentally, that, that self-righteous loner vibe that I got from the cashier at CVS kind of reminds me of, like, Travis Bickle, the, the racist loner made murderous vigilante in Martin Scorsese's movie Taxi Driver, which is, like, a dark, violent, very personal and very, very... It's a really gorgeous movie from 1976 that really rang my bell when I first saw it in high school, as I figure is probably the case for lots of lonely people who see that movie for the first time. I think I think the thing with Travis is that that character is that he wanted to be loved and there appeared to be nobody around who wanted to love him and finding nobody to love him he then dismissed all of them as monsters whose love wasn't worthy of being pursued it's a powerful movie and you should you should see it if you haven't but but yeah i don't i don't feel so much a kinship with that character anymore i hope it, it goes without saying and and while i do still feel like a deep-seated pang of empathy for travis because I, I remember when i was kind of like that it's not it's not the huge resounding gong of like holy shit this is me that i was feeling when i first saw that movie at 
14 or 15, and it was on IFC or whatever. But yeah, interesting thing about Taxi Driver is it was written by Paul Schrader, who recently enjoyed some indie success with his cerebral little spirituality movie called First Reformed. And he was talking in an interview recently about how several years ago, Robert De Niro had gotten to wondering about the fate of that character, Travis Bickle. And he went to Martin Scorsese and he said he was thinking about doing a Taxi Driver sequel. And he said that he would like Scorsese to give it some thought and to maybe get Schrader on board to write the script. So as Schrader is telling the story, he says, you know, Scorsese reaches out to him and says, look, De Niro wants to do another Taxi Driver. I was hoping you could talk to him. And, you know, and, and the way the way Schrader is telling the story, he's basically saying that Scorsese is too nice of a guy and can't say no to Robert De Niro. And so he wants Schrader to do it for him. And so Schrader agrees and he goes out to dinner with Robert De Niro and Robert De Niro get, makes his pitch. He says, you know, Travis Bickle, we left him off here in the 70s. I think he might have done X, Y, and Z, whatever. And so, um, yeah, they're at the table and they're eating and they're brainstorming and uh, Schrader tells him, Bob, there is no sequel to Taxi Driver. That's the, the stupidest idea I've ever heard. And that, as, as they say, is that. Tonight's episode of the Thousand Movie Project podcast is sponsored by Rugs, Rugs, Rugs. Rugs, Rugs, Rugs is the number one retailer of rugs in Miami-Dade County. Do you need a rug? Go to Rugs, Rugs, Rugs on the Pinecrest side of US-1 and 124th. And now we go to the mail. Today's letter comes from Jeff out of Miami. Jeff writes, Dear Thousand Movie Project, I write you at a critical juncture and hope that you will have some words of guidance for me. I am 32 years old and I live in Little Havana with my wife and, as of just recently, a chicken. The chicken's name is Jerome. The K's at the end are silent. I did not think that chickens were so personable as Jerome has proven to be. I feed him table scraps, and he seems to show a preference for certain kinds of music. About a month ago, while tending to the yard, I found myself confiding in Jerome, really just talking out loud, but Jerome seemed to be listening very closely. Soon after that, I began talking to him often. Jerome is always attentive, and tilts his head in a way that makes me feel understood. I say to him, Jerome, do you understand me? And he says back to me, Bagak, which can mean many things, but which in my heart I understand to mean only one. My wife does not respect our friendship and refuses to let Jerome sleep in our bed or sit at the table, and she makes insinu insinuendos about our baths. She also insists that his name is not Jerome, but Jerome and says that I cannot throw the letter K on things and insist that the Ks are silent. How do I get my wife to respect me and my chicken's friendship? It is reaching a head, and I would hate to think that this is our breaking point. Big fan of the project and of old movies. Keep up the good work. Sincerely, Jeff. Well, thanks for your letter, Jeff. I appreciate your kind words about Thousand Movie Project. It's readers like you who help me carry it forward. Your situation is a tough one, and while I'm glad to hear that you found a solid companion in Jerome, I'm sorry to hear that this companionship may have come at the expense of marital strife. There are many reasons why your wife might not be fond of this new friendship. My guess is that she feels excluded, and her feelings of neglect have manifested as a dismissal of Jerome's autonomy and the legitimacy of your friendship. Early in my process with Thousand Movie Project, I really disliked the actor Cary Grant. Maybe you've heard of him. He was like the George Clooney of the 1940s. Well, I cringed and got flustered whenever he appeared on screen, and I didn't understand why. I just knew that I really didn't like him, and that it was silly, and it was starting to color my appreciation of his films. I figured this wasn't fair to the people who'd worked on those films. I figured that this senseless disdain that I couldn't even explain to myself wasn't really fair to the other people who'd worked on those films. So I decided one day, on a whim, that I would read Mark Elliott's recent biography of Grant. And wouldn't you know it, within a hundred pages, I came to like the guy. I think this is something we all experience in life. A person can rub us the wrong way for reasons we don't totally understand. 
Sometimes the best action we can take against the irrational disdain is to try and understand the person toward whom we're feeling it. Try to humanize them. My suggestion is that you leave your wife and Jerome alone together for a weekend. Encourage her to confide in your chicken. Give her a chance to appreciate, at her own pace, the attentiveness that so won you over to begin with. I wish you the best of luck in resolving your issue, and I thank you for being a reader. Sincerely, Alexander Sarando and The Thousand Movie Project. You've been listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. If you like this, make sure to check out the blog posts every day on www.thousandmovieproject.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and on Facebook, and to have a nice day.